0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, in a eulogy to Abraham Lincoln delivered on June 1st, 1865, Frederick Douglass posed the question, what was Lincoln to the colored people or they to him? His answer was that Lincoln was emphatically the black man's president, the first to show any respect for the rights of a black man or to acknowledge that he had any rights the white man ought to respect. With me to discuss his new book, The Black Man's President, Abraham Lincoln, African Americans and the Pursuit of Racial Equality, is Michael Burlingham. The Chancellor Naomi B. Lynn Distinguished Chair in Lincoln Studies at the University of Illinois Springfield, Burlingham is perhaps the foremost living authority on the 16th president. Michael Burlingham, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm so happy to say this is the first, I think this is the first podcast I've ever done on Abraham Lincoln. And I'm about to do one on Hitler, the first ever podcast on Hitler. So I'm really happy that Lincoln managed to nip out Hitler, just just barely at the gate. Um, that, that that fills me with relief. Unfortunately, I have never done one on Jesus, so uh, or Napoleon. So there's the there's still work to be done. Um, let's dig a little deeper into this um, 1865 eulogy by Frederick Douglass. And uh, you did it. I, I uh, someone uh, I read it and I knew this eulogy existed, um, but of course, I'm thinking immediately when I read it. I'm thinking of his 1876 speech, um, which I think you intended for some of us to to be thinking about that. While, we, but let's talk about the 65 eulogy first. Um, what was the venue? Um, what was the the moment? And uh, what was? Could you expand a little bit on Douglas's argument? Uh,
1: by all means, um, in on June 1st, 1865, uh, Frederick Douglass delivered this eulogy on Lincoln at Cooper Union, which was arguably the premier spot to give a public utterance in that time period. Uh, and it was a huge crowd. Uh, this was in New York City. Uh, it was a, a largely black crowd. Uh, uh, there were uh, 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 singers and uh, large numbers of school children and, and large numbers of black people. Uh, and it was the last full day of mourning for Abraham Lincoln. And so, so it was. It was a very important event, and it was written up uh, fairly extensively in the New York Times, the New York Post, the New York Tribune, the New York Herald, Um, and uh, it is it's a remarkable speech. And I I remember when I first discovered it, it was not in any of the published editions of Douglas's speeches. There are five fat volumes that uh, the Yale Press published in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, It's not in there. Uh, there was a four-volume edition of Douglass's writings uh, edited earlier by Philip Foner. Uh, it's not in there. Uh, and so I was going through the Library of Congress uh, collection of Frederick Douglass papers. This is many years ago. And I discovered uh, uh, a speech that Douglass gave, this speech in fact, in Douglass's handwriting. And uh, I was astounded because like you, uh, and on almost everybody who pays any attention to the subject of Lincoln and race, uh, you uh, and I and many others were familiar with the 1876 speech when Frederick Douglass said Abraham Lincoln was um, uh, preeminently the white man's president, uh, and we black people were only his stepchildren. Uh, and so I thought, heavens, uh, how could I have missed this eulogy? So I went back to the Foner edition, not there. I went back to the Yale edition, not there. And I thought, well, this this is quite remarkable. Um, And I've done my best to call attention to this speech, uh, which still is unanthologized, as far as I know, with with one exception, a a collection of pieces about the assassination. But um, it deserves to be much better known because uh, I think it reflects Douglas's true attitude, his true feelings about Lincoln, unlike the 1876 speech. Now, in 1876, when Douglas said, Abraham Lincoln was preeminently the white man's president. Uh, he was speaking to a large audience at the dedication of a statue, the Emancipation Statue in Washington, uh, which shows Lincoln standing with the Emancipation Proclamation and a slave having broken his shackles rising uh, up from bondage. And, uh, but in addition to the large number of black people who were there, this is on Capitol Hill, uh, the power elite was there, the president was there, members of his cabinet were there, leaders of Congress were there, justices of the Supreme Court were there. And so Douglass says, and now I'd like to address the white members of my audience and it clearly it was addressed to the power elite. And what, uh, what he was saying, I think the subtext of what he was saying is, don't let reconstruction go down the drain. That is by 1876, the attempt to make black people first-class citizens which Lincoln had started in a speech that he gave uh, on April 11th, 1865, when he called for black voting rights, at least limited black voting rights. And then Congress picked up the ball and then passed the 14th Amendment giving black people basic civil rights and the 15th Amendment giving black men the right to vote. Uh, and then Congress passes enforcement legislation saying that these amendments are going to be enforced. And then the grand administration, at least in its early stages, enforced rigorously uh, but then in the mid-1870s, uh, the Great Administration seemed to lose interest, the public seemed to lose interest, uh, and Reconstruction was gradually, and in fact rapidly at that point, uh, disappearing. That the attempt to guarantee these rights that had been uh, established on paper, that they would be living reality. Well, that effort was now being abandoned. And, and so what Douglas was saying is, don't let that happen because this was all started by your man, Abraham Lincoln. He was devoted to your interests. And he knew that it was in the interests of white people to have black people treated like first-class citizens. So please don't think of Lincoln as some kind of bleeding heart liberal who sentimentally uh, called for black voting rights. Think of him as a tough-minded white man who knew what was best for the white race. uh, And that was first-class citizenship for black people.
0: So these two speeches, set up for me in, in my head, what a German undoubtedly calls Das Abraham Lincoln Problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is the, um, is to, if an undergraduate's talking to me, is, was Abraham Lincoln a racist? That's how it, it's distilled. Right. Um, right. And, uh, and, and bingo, you wrote a book about it. Uh, and I, right. I guess it was, it was, you were the one in, in your 2000 volume, a uh, 2000 page, volumes on Lincoln, uh, which I, I believe you, as you said, Kindle was designed for this biography. I think you drew attention to the speech then. Now, using Frederick Douglass, one of the two master rhetoricians of the 19th century, um, using him as evidence is problematic for a historian, but let's just let's st- stick with it. People have done this for a long time, so we'll stick with it. This creates this problem of what was Lincoln what did Lincoln believe and when did he believe it? Is that right. kind of – is yes. that what we're, where we're starting? Yes, indeed. So you say that he was a racial egalitarian. Right. And that his racial egalitarianism has roots in Illinois. Now, I am well informed – that Illinois was the most racist northern state, or some—I think I said someone once said the most racist state in 1860, which is a, which is a bit, Mississippi wants its money back. Um, <laughs> well, I think free you know, state is the I, yeah, <laughs> but I guess I guess of the free states, it's the most racist state. So how how dare you claim, sir, that Illinois is a racial egalitarian? What what is the soil in which racial egalitarianism can have its roots in Illinois?
1: Well, it it. It is striking. And, and one of the things Frederick Douglass says that is, is that Lincoln was one of the very few people he, white people he knew, who, who with whom he could converse and not feel self-conscious about his race. Uh-huh. Um, and that uh, that was particularly surprising, Frederick Douglass said, because Lincoln came from a state that had a black code, which forbade black yeah. people to not only to vote and hold office and serve on juries and intermarry with whites, but even forbade black people to settle in the state. Uh-huh. Um, and so... So Lincoln's uh, racial egalitarianism uh, has its roots in the people that Lincoln knew, the black people Lincoln knew in Springfield, uh, where he lived uh, for a quarter of a century before becoming president. And he he lived in a racially and ethnically diverse neighborhood. He had black neighbors a half block down the street who were conductors on the Underground Railroad. Um he had a good friend whose barber was, was, was a, a real friend, not just an acquaintance, not just a client, uh, somebody he, for whom he was a client. He was also, he had black clients for in his legal practice, including his barber. Um, and he, he would, uh, interact with black people as servants in his home, as neighbors, um, as people he read about in the newspaper, about whom he, people he saw back and as, as he was going back and forth from his house to work. Um, and so, uh. So uh, Lincoln interacted with these people. And these people were not, as some have argued, a subservient, downtrodden, spiritless people. These were people who, who were conductors in the Underground Railroad, uh, attendees at conventions that called for the elimination of the Black Code uh, in Springfield, uh, some of whom were, were uh, 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 champions of uh, colonization so that Black people could escape from persecution in the United States by going to Liberia. Um, so, so Lincoln for, uh, all these years was, uh, uh, surrounded by and interacting with black people whom he, with, and, and the, the testimony we have from these black people is that Lincoln treated them uniformly with respect and consideration and kindness and, and showed no sense of condescension or, or, or racial superiority. Uh, so, um, so it, I think it's pretty clear that, that that experience in Springfield predisposed him. Um, as president, uh, to favor policies and to honor requests from Black people uh, positively.
0: What do we you know about Lincoln's uh, thoughts and feelings about the Black Code in Illinois?
1: Well, the, the Black Code in Illinois, the one that I just mentioned, that forbade Black voting and mm-hmm. office and so forth. And, and um, Black settlement, free Blacks moving into
0: Exactly,
1: exactly. Well, when that... Uh, uh, A portion of the Illinois State Constitution uh, was drafted. Uh, uh, Lincoln was uh, was not there, Um, and and when that portion of the Constitution was submitted to the voters for ratification, um, Lincoln was in Congress, so so he didn't cast a vote. So we don't know. What we do know, because viva voce voting was still uh, in in effect there, that is, you you can find the voting records, how people individual people voted, that almost all of his friends voted against that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, including his his uh, law partner uh, Stephen T Logan, uh, who actually worked to to undermine it. Um, as did his wife's brother-in-law, who was a good friend of his, uh, Ninian Edwards, uh, to to introduce a poison pill to 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 uh, scrap that p- provision of the new constitution, um, and so uh, and also when when Lincoln was asked uh, in eighteen fifty nine by a journalist, well, uh, what about your your stated opposition to uh, black intermarriage? And he said, oh, that's nonsense. That law doesn't mean anything. I have no objection to a, a black woman marrying a white man if, if, if she could stand it. <laughs> um, uh, and so, um, so what I think we need to, to say apropos of Lincoln and the, and the Black Code is that in his debates, in Lincoln's debates with Stephen A. Douglas in 1858, he, um, he does pay lip service to the laws that were on the books in Illinois at the time. Uh, that he did not favor getting rid of the uh, code uh, provisions regarding black voting and and jury service and the like. Um, uh, But that was lip service. That was formality. He was running against Stephen A. Douglas. Douglas was hammering him because at the outset of the campaign – Lincoln was so bold as to say, let's set aside all this quibbling about one race being superior and the other race being inferior, and therefore one race has to be confined to an inferior position. Let's forget all this quibbling and unite as one people once again and declare our uh, support for the good old Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. Well, Douglas then hammers Lincoln and hammers him and hammers him and hammers him Saying you favor social equality for blacks, you favor black voting, you favor black intermarriage rights, you favor yeah. black jury, and and, and Lincoln, he had to do something to respond to that, otherwise his his campaign was was doomed, and he thought it was essential to defeat Stephen A. Douglas if the anti-slavery cause was to prevail uh, in the nation.
0: Yeah, it's um, for reading you reading Alan Guelzo, then going back and looking at the debates, it's clear. There's a book to be written about the history of miscegenation. Right. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we've got, if there probably is one, I just don't know about it, but I I, need- uh, you would think that 1858, you would think that the campaign from Douglass' perspective is all about miscegenation. It's about racial mixing. Right. Um, and right. you can see that a line going all the way from the 1670s in Virginia through 1705, through the lincoln Douglas debates to Loving v. Virginia, which in some ways is, when you get down to it, it's like the most essential case <laughs> is uh, miscegenation is such at the heart of the racial system um, right? Uh, as conceived by racists um, right? Uh, without it. And for, for Douglas, that's what the campaign seems to be about. I don't think it's just political. I don't know what you think about this, but I've come to the conclusion it's not just political rhetoric. It's a clever political move to, to make Lincoln about miscegenation. But I think Douglas actually believes it.
1: Well, it, it could well be. It, it's hard to know his true feelings about these matters. Yeah. Um uh, but and it, it should be borne in mind too that when the voters of Illinois uh, repealed the Black Code in 1865, they said, "Okay, black people can vote, black people can serve on juries, uh, black people uh, can hold office," but they didn't repeal the that uh, they can settle in Illinois. But they didn't repeal the one remaining uh, statute feature, uh, which was uh, intermarriage. That yep. it took several years. It was more. To have uh, intermarriage uh, abolished, so that seems to have been the thing that was most important to the white voters of Illinois. Yeah. Um, So you uh, you seem to
0: give a greater attention to Lincoln's deeds and friendships rather than even sort of his um, well, for example, I, I always those notes to self that he would write and and, right. and preserve those always seem to me very dispositive about some of his racial feelings, but you yes. pay less attention at first. You're more
1: interested in the relationships. Exactly. The, my, the, the theory of this book, and, and the book is really two books. It's, it's, 200 pages are devoted to the story of Lincoln's interaction with black people face to face, not, not on his policies or his right. speeches or, or appointments and the like. Um, then I have an appendix for about 40 pages in which I deal with the evidence that purports to show that Lincoln was a racist. And mm-hmm. in that latter portion, I do deal, as, as, as you're uh, alluding to, with the argument that, that that Lincoln was a racist. And and one of the points you make, uh, the point you make is very well taken, that if you look at these uh, notes that Lincoln would write to himself, which were his way of thinking out loud and clarifying his thinking, um, he he. Uh, he shows his egalitarian spirit. Uh, for example, he says um, uh, he's having a colloquy with, with a with a racist and saying, "Now, now, so you think black people should be enslaved because they're black? So it's a matter of skin color, right?" And then the other guy says, "Yes." And Lincoln says, "Well, beware, because you may become the slave of the first person with a lighter complexion than yours." Um, and then, so um, so it's it's a matter not then of color, but it's a matter of interest. It's in the interest of slaveholders to hold slaves. Well, beware, because the first person who can come along and prove that it's in his interest to enslave you, you're a slave of, and and mm-hmm. so on. Um, so uh, that I think is indicative of Lincoln's uh, uh, instinctive racial egalitarianism.
0: Well, let's talk more about these relationships. Uh, when he becomes president, uh, when when Lincoln becomes president, he moves to a very large southern mansion in a southern pay. town. <laughs> right. Uh, which means he's surrounded by Black Americans, um, right. and there's already, um, even though uh, DC, they have not, have, they have not yet outlawed slavery in, in the district, uh, but it is a, there are a lot of free blacks, a lot of free blacks from Virginia and from Point South have moved into DC, so it's already it's. It's becoming the chocolate city. It's, it's a center of free black initiative and enterprise. And Lincoln is surrounded by that community because many of them work in the right. White House. So what right. are his relationships with them and with that well, wider D.C.
1: community? Of- right. Well, Lincoln, um, uh, as soon as he arrives in Washington um, or steps into the White House, um, uh, has, uh, deals with uh, African-Americans on the White House staff. Now, there are plenty of white people on the white, on the white House staff, but there were a lot of black people, too. And Lincoln brings with him from Springfield uh, a young black man um, who was going to be his uh, body servant, and barber. And, and uh, Lincoln wanted to put him on the White House staff. Uh, but the the African-Americans on the White House staff were all light skinned and this gentleman, William Johnson, was dark-skinned. And there's strong prejudice against dark-skinned blacks by light-skinned blacks uh, at that time. Um, and it's a phenomenon known as colorism, which I, was, I just a term I discovered in my research, which was new to me, but that refers to uh, prejudice against darker-skinned blacks by lighter-skinned blacks. Um, in any event, so Lincoln then uh, has to find a, a job for William Johnson. Uh, where he is, doesn't interact with the other staff members. So he puts him in the furnace room of all places and then finally, and, and then urges cabinet members to find a spot for him and finally does at the Treasury Department, which is right next door to the White House. So William Johnson could work part-time at the Treasury De- and then come across the lawn to the White House and then um, act as Lincoln's uh, body servant. Uh, and Lincoln was very uh, friendly with, with Johnson. Um, for example, Johnson wanted to buy a house, uh, uh, for, for his family. And so Lincoln signs a loan, uh, guarantees a loan from a local bank. Uh, and, um, then when uh, Johnson accompanies Lincoln to Gettysburg in, in November of 63, and when they come back, they both have smallpox. Uh, Lincoln has a light case called varioloid, and Johnson has a much more severe case which kills him. Now Lincoln is, is, is bedridden for a couple of weeks, but Johnson dies. And while he's in the hospital on his deathbed, um, Lincoln uh, helps out by uh, signing checks for him to allow him to cash his his pay. Um, and then when he dies, he buys a coffin for him. He helps his family. Um, he uh, does everything he can to help out, uh, which is another indication, I think, of his of his uh, of his racial egalitarianism. And then the 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 black people on the White House staff, who then um, Uh, Are interviewed later by by a black historian, uh, uniformly say that Lincoln treated us with the utmost respect and kindness. And it wasn't just that, but he also befriended uh, the most prominent member of the White House, black member of the White House staff, a guy named William Slade. Now, William Slade was not just some ordinary black. He was a leader of the black community. He was the founder of one of the most prestigious uh, churches, the 15th Street Presbyterian Church. He was the head of uh, of various civic uh, organizations uh, which were involved in protests against uh, discriminatory treatment. And he was also a man of of, of culture and wit and, and loved to exchange stories with Lincoln. And Lincoln was very fond of him personally. And they would talk not just about day-in, day-out events in the White House, but also matters of policy and the like. And according to his daughter, they were they were very close friends. And then Lincoln's children would play with Slade's children. Uh, so uh, Lincoln's interaction with black people in Washington begins in 1861 with his interaction with the White House, members of the White House staff, African-American members, um, uh, and then in 1862, he starts to interact with black visitors. But in but 1861, the, the principal interactions he had were with members of the staff. Um, let's talk about
0: uh, Lincoln and colonization, which yeah. um, I remember a colloquy when I was a grad student between eminent professors and one of them saying, you know, I just don't understand Lincoln and colonization. Now you've explained uh, a a little bit about it in your previous in your in your biography of Lincoln, Um, but it's uh, for many people it really sticks in their craw, and I think it might be the largest obstacle to conceiving of Lincoln as a racial egalitarian. Um, uh, What was first of all what was for those who don't know what was colonization? You referred to it earlier. Uh, What was colonization, and how did Lincoln? How was, was Lincoln attracted to it in his early years? Let's follow
1: on to that. Okay, well, uh, colonization was an idea that uh, had um, long uh, since established itself in, uh, in the United States. Uh, officially in 1816 with the establishment of the American Colonization Society, which was designed to facilitate the uh, transfer of American freed slaves um, or, or free blacks to begin with, uh, who wished to leave to go to Liberia, which was an outpost of the American Colonization Society, which then becomes an independent nation in 1848. Um, uh, and the, the uh, support for colonization came from two, two very different sources. Uh, one was the pro-slavery source, and they wanted to uh, have colonization uh, largely because they wanted to get rid of free blacks, that the very existence of free blacks undermined Uh, the basis of slavery, because the slaves were taught that the only reason they were enslaved is because they were black. And that argument didn't (laughs) sit very well. If if those people could see free blacks (laughs) walking about, why are they free and I'm enslaved? Or alternatively, they feared that free blacks would foment slave rebellions. Um, That is to say, the the, the white folks who wanted to to get rid of the free blacks. So so, uh, for some, colonization was a movement to buttress and support and strengthen slavery. But then there were a lot of anti-slavery people, people who deplored human bondage um, and who thought that the only way that slaveholders would agree to free their slaves, and, and slavehold, many slaveholders said this, is that if somehow they could be transported abroad, uh, that, that we wouldn't have to deal with them uh, as free people uh, when they would be so full of resentment and understandable anger and and, and the like. Um uh, and and some some slaveholders who just said flat out we will not free our slaves unless we uh have a guarantee that they will be uh encouraged and uh to go abroad and and taken abroad at gov- at the government expense so um so you had idealists racial idealists and uh, racial bigots um supporting colonization now lincoln is sometimes thought of as a as an ardent colonizationist but that's not true uh Lincoln does not join any of the colonization societies that are founded in central Illinois uh, in the 1830s, 40s, and, and into the 50s when when he was living there. Um, uh, the, the, he doesn't help found the Illinois State uh, Colonization Society, even though a lot of his Whig lawyer friends did so. Um, and when he he does then become a member of the Illinois Colonization Society in the 1850s. Um, but uh, and and he does give an address to that organization, and which has only recently been discovered. That is a, a, a an account of it, a press account, and, and which was a very mild endorsement. He said, "Well, it's some people think it's a good idea. It's certainly worth considering, but it's hardly a ringing endorsement of colonization." Um, and then Lincoln doesn't doesn't talk about colonization in his debates with Stephen H. Douglas. Uh, it's it's not part of the uh, so platform I just wanted to. Um- uh, endorses. So he wasn't an ardent supporter of colonization from way back.
0: I just wanted to emphasize that because colonization, in my understanding, is something um, – the closest you can be an abolitionist in the Upper South is to be an advocate of colonization. So you have people like John Marshall. Uh, people in Maryland, Virginia, Kentucky, uh, Delaware um, will be uh, advocates of the American Colonization Society. Um, right eventually by 1830 that's even colonization is too extreme for the deep south um uh however in amongst free blacks in the north this is a very contentious issue um you know the the very first proposal for this famously in philadelphia splits uh, the splits the meeting uh james fortin and other prominent leaders are for it and but the 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 meeting the, the members of the meeting are against it. You've referred to already um, that there are uh, free blacks in Springfield are advocates of colonization, and for the Whigs, as I understand it, colonization is the one way that to get Southern Whigs and Northern Whigs to agree on some position on 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 slavery. Right. I mean that that's a sort of glue. And Lincoln's beau ideal of a statesman, Henry Clay, is. Uh, Kentucky slave owner, who's an advocate of colonization. So these are all right. important to realize. Uh, this, is, this is
1: Lincoln's, the milieu of his political culture. Right, exactly. Um, and so when, when Lincoln does, as president, support colonization, um, it's in part um, because that, uh, that he wishes to pave the way for emancipation that Lincoln early on uh, contemplated emancipation measures Um, as early as as his first year in office in in November of 1861, he works behind the scenes to get the state legislature of Delaware to abolish slavery. In fact, he drafts legislation for the state legislature to consider, which would compensate slaveholders for the value of their slaves. And you have to remember that that the average slaveholding was eight, the average cost of a slave was roughly the cost of a new car in modern terms, Imagine what it's like to have an investment worth eight new cars, uh, and then all of a sudden it's just removed um, by, by government fiat. So, so Lincoln said, well, th- th- fair enough that there should be some con- compensation. Um, and anyway, so, so uh, and then colonization was part of that. But Lincoln's support of colonization was never compulsory. Lincoln always said well, the colonization should be voluntary. Black people should never be forced to leave the country. Only those who who wanted to. And there were a large number, a fairly substantial number, particularly in the 1850s, of black people who despaired of ever achieving first-class citizenship in the United States for obvious reasons, particularly with the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which basically legalized kidnapping, uh, that free blacks could just be kidnapped and sold as slaves in the South. Um, so so many leading blacks, and, and even including Frederick Douglass in 1861, uh, is, talks about Haiti as, an, as a place where black people could have a refuge and that he, he welcomed the offer that the Haitian government was extending to American blacks just to migrate to, to Haiti to become members of, of uh, their society. Um, so, and, and then when Lincoln does formally um, call for uh, colonization, he asks five leaders of the black community in Washington, uh, people of, of education, standing, uh, social status, to meet with him in the White House. And then he urges them to be pioneers, to volunteer for a colonization scheme to Panama. Um, uh, uh he gets denounced. Frederick Douglass really denounces him. and calls him a, a Negro hater. And this is, this is a, a evidence of Lincoln's deep-seated racial prejudice. And uh, uh, the, the black people are worse off under him than they were even earlier. And a really severe denunciation. But then ironically, two of Douglass's adult sons, two of three, volunteer to go to Panama as part of this colonization scheme. And then about 14,000 blacks volunteer to go so um, the notion that black people were uniformly opposed to colonization is misleading. A lot of the black leadership was, but a lot of the black followership said, we're never gonna get a fair break in this country. So, um, so if the government will uh, facilitate our uh, transfer to a country where we would be treated like first-class citizens, and Lincoln insisted on that, I will not mm-hmm. arrange any kind of transfer uh, option for you, any refuge option where you would not be treated as first-class citizens. And that led a bunch of the states who in Central America who were thinking about colonization um, and, and inclined to support it Said, well, no, wait a minute. No, that, that'll be an excuse for the United States to intervene uh, just as they did in Mexico, overthrow the government and annex the country. So, so we're not going to go along with this colonization scheme if Lincoln's going to insist that he's going to guarantee that those people would be treated as first-class citizens. Okay. So
0: when does this colonization, this... Um this, this potential for colonization, when does it end?
1: Uh, well, uh, Lincoln doesn't refer to colonization publicly after the 1st of January, 1863, okay. when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, now, there, there has been a, a scholarship recently showing that the administration did engage in some low-level diplomatic uh, feelers with uh, Great Britain and with, uh, with the, the Dutch, and uh, about their colonies in, in the Caribbean as possible refuges for black people, but nothing came of that. And, and one of the things that, that, that should be emphasized is that Lincoln's support of colonization was really, was not based on his desire to get rid of all black people, far from it. The two things that were most important on Lincoln's mind when he, when he dealt with colonization and publicly endorsed it were one, grease the skids for emancipation, as I mentioned earlier. Because so many people from the South, senators, representatives, personal friends from Kentucky wrote him and said the only way our people are going to, our uh, neighbors, our friends, our constituents are going to accept emancipation is that if it's coupled with colonization. So grease the skids for emancipation. Second, Lincoln believed that people, black people who were deeply pessimistic about the future, um, deserve to have some kind of haven, some kind of refuge where they could find uh escape from second-class citizenship in the United States and achieve first-class citizenship in another country, and that, by golly, the, the government owed it to them to make that possible. But that would be a relatively small number. Most black people didn't want to move to a country where they didn't speak the language, the culture, and the food, and the climate was, was different from what they knew. But for those two humanitarian reasons. And then finally, a point that, that, that occurred to me when I was writing this book that hadn't occurred to me earlier is that when Lincoln does actually authorize a colonization effort that 450 blank people do get on a boat. They go to Haiti, uh, at, as, as part of a government, the government plan, which Lincoln authorizes a contract. Uh, and then they're, they're terribly mistreated. And then Lincoln authorizes a a ship to go and and rescue them and bring them back that that decision, which is pretty hard to understand in some ways was apparently made because Lincoln was being approached by abolitionists Humanitarians who were saying, "Look, the slaves who are escaping to our lines are living in these uh, very unsatisfactory camps, contraband camps, where disease is rampant, the death rate is high, and they are living in miserable conditions. Um, And they would would be better off if they were colonized." Um, And so uh, Lincoln receives this response to this appeal by saying, "Okay, well, we'll we'll give it a try. We'll we'll, we'll use this uh, Haitian." Uh, refuge as a as a plant, and it didn't work out at all. So thereafter, he he abandons it. Let's talk about uh, black
0: visitors to the White House. Um, sure. F- Frederick Douglass is often is, is is described as the first person to come to receptions or to visit Lincoln. But you make it clear that Frederick Douglass uh, came relatively late, <laughs> as it <laughs> were, to the White House. That there were Lincoln had many. Um, uh, regular callers at his uh, public opinion baths, black callers at his public opinion baths, as he called them. Um, and he also, there were people coming to receptions long before Frederick Douglass came to an official reception. Could you
1: describe a little bit of that? Yes, yes. Uh, well, Lincoln begins uh, receiving blank visitors in 1862. Um, uh, not, not at receptions. That, that starts in 1864. But as early as April of 1862, when Lincoln has been in office for, for just a year plus a month, um, uh, very eminent black visitors come to the White House uh, to, to lobby him. Uh, for example, the first one we have on record is Bishop Daniel Payne of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, perhaps the most highly regarded, most most respected black person in the country at the time. And he comes to Lincoln and, and urges him to sign a bill that Congress had passed and that he had not yet uh, authorized to signed, signed, um, freeing the slaves of Washington, D.C., and of course, Lincoln was all in favor of that because as a congressman 12 years earlier, he had framed a bill to abolish slavery in Washington, which didn't go anywhere. Um, uh, and, and Lincoln, and then, then Bishop Payne uh, later says that Lincoln treated him with the utmost respect and, and cordiality and said that he, he was very sympathetic. Um, and then, of course, two days later, he does sign that bill. Uh, the very next day, Alexander Cromwell, who's a philosoph- yeah. black philosophy professor uh, who had go- gone to Queens College, Cambridge. Um, uh, And who taught philosophy uh, uh, in in Liberia, where he was living, comes and urges Lincoln to support uh, colonization to, to Liberia, and Lincoln treats him respectfully and cordially, and, and um, uh, so so the ball gets rolling. But the receptions—it's um, uh, first uh, the first reception that uh, Lincoln held where black people showed up was on January first, eighteen sixty-four. And by the way, one of the things that inspired my book is a very fine article written by Kate Mazur, who's a historian, very fine historian at Northwestern University. She she wrote this excellent article about receptions at the White House, and I knew a little bit about that and talk a little bit about that in my big biography. But then she had a lot of extra information. I thought, well, this is really interesting. This deserves from some further exploration. And thanks to a, a, a dramatic development uh, in recent years, and that uh, we're able to do a lot more you know, in-depth research than we used to be able to do because of word searchable newspaper databases. And so taking advantage of those databases, I found all kinds of information about who these people were and, and several receptions before Douglas's uh, encounter with Lincoln in 1865. Um, but I was inspired by her article and then able to find a lot of new information. So so Black people start coming to receptions as early as uh, January of 60. Four and then in February '64 they some come and then uh, in '65 uh, again a New Year's uh, Day and, and several other uh, episodes, um, culminating in 1865 with Frederick Douglass's visit, which is pretty famous. Uh, right after Lincoln's second inauguration, where he's initially refused admittance to the White House, Lincoln immediately sends word, admit him. He comes and, and Lincoln says, well, there's my friend Douglas. And Douglas says, oh, I, I don't want to jump the line, Mr. President. You've got all these people on your go. Oh, no, no. Come right here. There's no man whose opinion I value more than yours. What did you think of my inaugural address? And I, I, I fantasize sometimes that Douglas might have said, well, I thought the syntax in that second paragraph was a little... Tangled, and and the the biblical allusion to Jesus' statement, uh, I think, didn't really quite fit the situation. But uh, but otherwise, it was pretty good. And when instead yeah. says, "Mr. President, it was a sacred effort," <laughs> and yeah. Douglas says in his autobiography, "I was the first one to break the color line," but it wasn't. That, that had happened yeah. on several earlier occasions.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, another overlooked visitor, uh, probably the Black uh, American. To my mind, second only in fascination is Frederick Douglass, which is Martin Delaney. Um, talk about Martin Delaney's visit to, to Lincoln, because that, that is so fascinating.
1: Was, well, Martin Delaney um, was one of the few black visitors who came to the White House was, who was not of mixed race. Um, and he was very proud about having all black blood um, and, and having very dark skin. Uh, and it was said that if you drew charcoal <laughs> across his skin, it would make a white line. Um and uh, so anyway, so, so Martin Delaney uh, comes to the White House, uh, is, this is in 1865, and he, and he says, Mr. President, um, uh, I would like to suggest uh, that uh, an all-black army be established in which black soldiers would serve not just as enlisted men, but also as officers. Because under the provisions of the legislation then in effect, black people couldn't rise above the rank of sergeant. They couldn't become lieutenants or captains or majors or colonels or generals. Um, uh, And he said, an all black army with black officers to penetrate into the South, to spread the word of emancipation, uh, to let black people know that if they would flee to to their lines, that they would be liberated. Uh, And Lincoln says, well, I've been trying to get that idea out for a long time. And and, and Lincoln had in fact had asked Frederick Douglass um, a few months earlier, to help devise a series of scouts who would go and spread the word to black people who were not yet within Union lines to flee to Union lines in order to achieve their freedom, just in case Lincoln lost his election and a Democrat would come into office, and therefore all the slaves who had not been liberated by March Fourth, eighteen sixty-five, would remain in slavery. Um, so, so Lincoln is very enthusiastic, um, and so the the, the and, then, and then he appoints uh, Martin Delaney to be the first. Uh, major, um, that is the rank of major, um, uh, in the Union Army, and, and a line officer that is part of a combat unit. Uh, the other earlier uh, officers had been chaplains and uh, physicians, uh, and uh, although they had rank, uh, the white people didn't have to salute them, and they couldn't give orders to white people. Uh, so, so, the, so Martin Delaney comes in and makes this appeal. Lincoln responds very positively, uh, he says, and, and Delaney leaves an elaborate account of this interview, uh, and then we have a document in Lincoln's hand where he sa- he gives to Delaney and says, "Take this to the Secretary of War, and tell Mr. Stanton that I approve." And 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 or, or uh, uh, and the note says, "Please pay attention to this this extraordinarily intelligent uh, and uh, forceful uh, uh, black gentleman." Um, so uh, so that uh, reaction to Delaney's plan. And then the earlier urging of Frederick Douglass to encourage blacks to, in effect, carry out a kind of John Brown's scheme uh, is indicative of, of Lincoln's racial egalitarianism, particularly later in the war.
0: Well, let's um, let's talk about evidence. Uh, let's go to that that the section at the end where you talk about evidence. Um. I'm, uh, how would you summarize the evidence uh, generally, the case for Lincoln being a congenital racist, which is, uh, that's the that's sort of, that's the extreme perhaps uh, of it, but that's certainly has been argued. So what's the evidence that's provided for that?
1: Well, the, ev- the evidence that's usually shown uh, or adduced to purport um, showing that Lincoln was a racist, uh, uh, first is uh, his statement in the, two statements in the 1858 debates with Douglas. Where he says, I, I do not believe that blacks should be allowed to be voters or jurors or intermarry with whites or uh, hold office or the like. Um, and he makes that statement twice. Um, and then during the uh, – but then as, as I mentioned earlier, that's, that's, that's pro forma. That's, that's lip service that you just – it was the price you had to pay to have any chance of defeating Douglas because Douglas was hammering you on the issue of black civil rights. Uh, so, so those two statements: um, uh, the first debate in Ottawa and the fourth debate in Charleston. Um, then, in the course of the debates, Lincoln uses the N-word, um, and people say, "Oh, well, you're the N-word—that shows he's a hopeless racist." Well, if you look at the uh, use of the word of the N-word by Lincoln during those debates, it's almost always um, when he's paraphrasing and, and mocking Stephen A. Douglas for using such a vulgar term. Um, uh, and that's implicit, you know, uh, but it's it seems pretty clear from the context that that's what he was doing. Um, then, uh, uh, then, but there are uh, a, there are a handful of episodes where he uses the N word in private conversation, which is clearly not meant to be uh, a mockery of, of Douglas, uh, and that does reveal um, that under under great strain um, that 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 some vestigial, uh, some vestige of earlier attitudes toward black people that were part of the atmosphere he grew up in in Kentucky, which was after all a slave state, Southwest Indiana, which was a free state, but it was filled with Kentuckians who, who had, (laughs) were unenlightened by modern standards when it came to race. Um, and to the, the Kentuckians in central Illinois, where he settled, um, but those are very few in number. And when when you weigh those in the balance against all the evidence I adduce of uh, Lincoln's interaction with black people, showing him to be, and all these black people saying he was a racial egalitarian, he treated us with the utmost respect and kindness and generosity, um, that those uh, those shards of evidence hardly, uh, uh, they're, they're embarrassing to, to, to read in the 21st century. Um, But uh, uh, compared to what most white people were like, and particularly coming from central Illinois, um, uh, the the striking feature is how how very, very rarely any indication of that prejudice emerged. What – how how to put this? What amount of evidence
0: comes from the opinions of abolitionists who visit Lincoln?
1: Uh, Well – Lincoln was visited by white abolitionists and black abolitionists. Um, And and the the black abolitionists, of course, uh, the the leading one is is Frederick Douglass, um, uh, and who attested again and again that Lincoln treated him with the utmost respect, um, made him feel welcome, treated him uh, cordially. Um, He felt like he was in the presence of a big brother. uh, that there were almost no other white people who made him less uh, uncomfortable uh, about his race than, than Lincoln. Um, and even though he didn't always agree with everything Lincoln was saying, but, but but Lincoln made him feel at ease to express his disagreement with Lincoln as much as he did his agreement. Um, so, uh, uh, and then you know, other... And, um, and, and yes.
0: Sojourner so Truth, uh, we Wait, could go right. on down the list of prominent... Uh, black abolitionists who visit him yeah i notice it's um how to put this gently one of the things that your biography of lincoln uh did for me was to develop a congenital dislike of wendell phillips uh, which (laughs) which which, which feels wrong such a good man doing good things and yet uh i resolved never to trust any you know anything that came out of wendell phillips mouth basically um he certainly, he's he's certainly. Uh, I, I think that he's often used as evidence for Lincoln's Sort of his suspicions of Lincoln's racism often
1: are 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 put in the evidence bucket. Right, right, um, and and then Frederick uh, uh, Wendell Phillips does have some very uh, sharp criticisms uh, of Lincoln, um, and, and Wendell Phillips was something of a national scold. Um, and, uh, and his record isn't entirely unblemished, by the way. Um, like He lands very heavily on Lincoln for his statements and at the uh, Charleston debate and, and, and uh, his tardiness by uh, the standards of Wendell Phillips and the abolitionists in issuing the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, allowing for the enlistment of black troops and allowing black troops to be paid equally and all that, um, uh, that he was a very, very sharp critic. Um, uh, and, and didn't fully acknowledge the manhood, uh, uh, equality of black people. But then after the war, um, uh, Wendell Phillips uh, is a supporter of Chinese exclusion and refers to the Chinese and what, what, what are, by modern standards, really offensive racial tropes. Um, I
0: think so- we would say uh, Mr. Phillips was an unsystematic thinker.
1: <laughs> right, right. And Lincoln at one point says to one of his White House secretaries, Apropos of a of an unnamed Boston orator, he is a thistle. I don't understand why God allows him to live. And that's pretty clearly <laughs> a reference to Wendell Phillips. Yeah.
0: Um, I, I'm curious. Uh, as historians are not scientists, um, even though many people in the 20th century thought we should be. Um, I'm curious um, – when do you feel you've achieved a preponderance of evidence when you're trying to make a point um and uh and is that uh, is that
1: wrong to ask you, you, you are <laughs> no, no, no. giving me such a look <laughs> no 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 that's that's perfectly legit and one of the things you have to do as a historian and just common sense what we do all the time in our daily lives is um if you have competing versions of events or assessments of people, um, you look for the evidence. And usually there's evidence on the positive side and the negative side. So you have scales to balance. And and you do the best you can in research to find out everything positive and negative about your person or about the issue. And then you see how the scales are. And what would what you find, or at least I found in my research, is that the evidence of Lincoln being a racial egalitarian uh, is far outweighs uh, the evidence that he wasn't. Um, so, um, uh, but it, it, it's hard to say that there's a, a uh, measuring rod by which you can say, well, uh, this, this proves, proves beyond a, sh- a shadow of a doubt. Uh, right. that, that Your case is, but what, what you have to do, and what I do try to do in this book, is is acknowledge the the other side that, that you know, mm-hmm. here, here here's the evidence that they cite and here's why I think it's it it doesn't uh, prove the point point. Uh, mm-hmm. and that I think as a historian what you owe your audience uh, to to uh, to acknowledge that there is evidence on the other side and and then deal with it now one of the problems with doing that is that it interrupts the narrative flow <laughs> right? and so I I I stick all that stuff in an appendix for people who are more inclined to want to read about historians disputes but it's important that, was, it's that was the first
0: part of the book that I read which shows you where I'm coming from <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so I, I you've touched on this right at the beginning um, you know I've heard you give a, a couple lectures and I realized that Michael Burlingham is a bloodhound for sources right. um, you have and you know speaking of, of, of parts of the book that uh, a historian would read first you know I would I should just talk to, I should just talk to you for fifteen minutes fifty minutes about uh, your discoveries and archives because that you know, I, I think that's just enthralling. But I, I I it listeners are going to realize that, you know, Lincoln is in some kind of foot race for most books about him with Jesus and Napoleon. Right. And maybe Hit- and maybe Hitler. Right. Um, and you would think then that everything that's been said about Lincoln has that needs to be said has been said and yet somehow you know you've discovered new stuff um that hiding in plain sight could you just describe how you went from connecticut college you, you just decided to go up to brown university one day and look in the library because i just tell that story because i because i love
1: that one <laughs> well uh, when i my first book was called uh, the inner world of Abraham Lincoln. It's a series of psychological essays about his relations with his parents and his children and his wife and so forth. Um, and uh, so I started that book when I was teaching at Connecticut college in New London. And uh, so I thought I can, there's probably nothing new factually about Lincoln to be discovered, but what I'll do is to, is to go through the literature uh, books and articles and, uh, and uh, look at it from a psychological point of view uh, and see if some new interpretations may be generated from, from the old evidence. And so I, I drafted the book based on the material that was in the Connecticut College Library and the, the, that was available under library loan. And so I knew the literature pretty well. But then I thought, you know, I really ought to do some original research in unpublished sources. So the very first day that I set out to do that, I go to Brown University, which is only about an hour away from New London. And I go to the John Hay Library, which is the rare book and manuscript library at Brown. And I have a very sophisticated research design in mind. I go to the card catalog. You're too young to remember the card catalog is. No, <laughs> I was the, la- the last
0: year of the card catalog, actually, as a freshman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, uh, and I go to the drawer marked L and I pull it open and all these old three by five cards. And I start flipping through them. And then all of a sudden I find one that, that summarizes an interview that was held by one of Lincoln's secretaries 10 years after the assassination with, with a good friend of Lincoln's. And there's all kinds of new information. in it. I thought, holy mackerel, look at that. And then the next card had another interview and the next card had another interview and the next card. had an, I, I was just astounded. Um, and uh, the, the, these, these were interviews with people that Lincoln knew well. And yet hadn't been interviewed by anybody else, including Williams, uh, Williams Herndon, Lincoln's law partner, who had interviewed scores and dozens mm-hmm. more.
0: Um, but we should say that Brown, the uh, John Hay, Lincoln's one of Lincoln's two secretaries, uh, well, through whatever uh, one of the Lincoln's secretaries, graduate alumnus of Brown, uh, later Secretary of State, an eminent American statesman right. of the late 19th century, gave money to Brown Library named after him, and there were his papers. Hitherto for, untapped, you had stumbled into the, the the
1: undiscovered country. Well, just so that these these these, these hay papers were extremely valuable, um, uh, and and because because Hay, along with his fellow White House secretary John G Nicolay, wrote a ten volume ten volume biography of Lincoln. <laughs> um, it makes my makes my two thousand pages sure. look like pamphlets. I, I feel better, um, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Um, and they, they, they conducted these interviews as part of their research project, but then they decided not to use them because they had exclusive monopoly access to Lincoln's own personal papers. That is, his incoming mail, his outgoing mail, that is drafts of his speeches and letters and the like. Um, and, and historians, for, for understandable reasons, prefer to use documentary material of the time, rather than reminiscences of people, 10, 20, 30, 40 years after the event, because people's memories are unreliable. And as Mark Twain once said, the older I get, the more vividly I remember things that never happened. Um, <laughs> and, and so they decided not to use these these reminiscences, but these are extremely valuable. And and you, you when you use reminiscent material, as I do a lot, you have to be careful. Um, to to try to measure the accuracy and reliability and credibility of these witnesses based on what you know from the contemporary sources. Um, uh, And and there's room for reasonable people to disagree about whether this reminiscence is reliable and that one is. Um, But uh, you try to use your best judgment, um, try to be as dispassionate as possible. Um, And anyway, so so these, and, and then I thought to myself, I bet you a lot of early biographers went out and interviewed people who knew Lincoln, they have inter—they took notes. And then um, when they wrote their books, uh, they included some of that information, but their editor said, uh, you've got to shorten the book. You've got to compress that snowball, compact that snowball. You know, my, my editors at, at Johns Hopkins Press were merciless in confining me to 2,000 pages. Oh, I know. Um, That's uh, just <laughs> shame, shame, really shameful of them. <laughs> uh, and, so, and so I did. I found a lot of good information in the Carl Sandburg papers and the Editar Bill papers. And like. And then I thought, you know, I shouldn't just look at these papers. I should look at Lincoln's um, cabinet members, generals during the war, <laughs> members of Congress, uh, his Illinois compatriots. His, and so, but that's that's it. That takes a lot of work. You've got to go out to the you, you can't do all that research um, uh, just from New London. So you have to spend a lot of time in Springfield, a lot of time in Washington, but then also in historical societies in New Hampshire and Kentucky and Indiana and and Oregon and just all over the place.
0: So I I did that, yeah. Yeah. And so you were kind of come up with this oblique approach where you would sort of come sideways at the problem by looking for sources that were sort of diagonal from the source.
1: Right, right. Not just Lincoln's own own writings, but what people were writing about him. And and then newspapers too. Newspapers were a tremendously underutilized source. And now, thanks to these researchable databases, they're much more frequently used, but they're a fantastic source of information. Now, they have to be used too.
0: Yes, but I remember you saying that. um you know, back then to the, say the Lockport, Pennsylvania Gazette had, you know, our man in Washington or whatever. Uh, and, and, and they would be there maybe at Lincoln's uh, receptions or at, at his public opinion baths and overhear people and describe who was there. And
1: right. that's very useful. Right. Well, when a person comes out of the White House, having spoken to, the, to Lincoln, he isn't necessarily going to go talk to the New York Times, the New York Herald, the New York Tribune. He's going to go talk to his hometown newspaper. Um, uh-huh. So an Ohio senator might talk to the the uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer re- reporter, or uh, an Indiana uh, senator might talk to the Indianapolis Journal, um, and so you really have to look at all those newspapers, and that that's what I did for the for for the big biography. But then since then, everything I've written needs to be updated because of this this fantastic new tool we have that is word searchable newspapers. Now they did exist earlier. Uh, while I was still doing the big book, but since then, that's eleven years ago. Uh, th- there's been an explosion in that, and thank God for genealogists because it's through uh, Genealogy Bank, um, which has, of course, it's it's commercially viable to to create these expensive databases because there are enormous numbers of genealogists. The number of historians who go through newspapers is relatively tiny compared to. <laughs> The, the body of genealogists but and, and my friends used to complain about genealogists because when you went to the national archives The the documents would all be microfilmed, and so you had to wait for a microfilm reader, and all the microfilm readers would be taken up by genealogists. And they would say, well, well, these darn genealogists, don't complain. They're the ones who make these places possible (laughs) because they're Uh, nothing but ours aren't. That's
0: that's a good note to end on as I (laughs) repent of all the times I've complained to myself about genealogists who don't know who talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the <laughs> archives, uh, Michael Burlingame, uh, author of *The Blackman's Present*, Abraham Lincoln, African Americans, in the Pursuit of Racial Equality. Thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Just a brief reminder: if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher iHeartRadio, GeoSavon, PodChaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.